Uh, we're going to be talking about encountering God here this morning. If you would, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. That's where we're going to be do- taking a reading from today. Isaiah chapter 6, and so uh, follow along with me if you will. But if we are going to get an understanding of God's plan for our life, it requires an honest look at how we view God, how we view ourselves, and how we view others. Let me say that again. If we're going to get an understanding of God's plan for our life, it requires an honest look at how we view God, how we view ourselves, and how we view others. Let's all bow for prayer. Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would be with us here this morning. Lord, that which I hope that our people will understand today, they're not going to understand it just with my words, Lord. God, I need your Holy Spirit just to come and to touch their hearts here this morning. Help them see you. Help them experience you here this morning in a way maybe they've never experienced you before. God, touch our hearts and help us to see you here this morning as you really are. We thank you for it, Lord. We ask us all in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On September the 11th, 2001, 19 militant associated with the extremist group Al-Qaeda, hijacked four planes and carried out <coughs> suicide attacks on targets in the United States. Two of the planes were flown into the Twin Towers at the World Trade Center in New York City. A third plane went into the Pentagon out of Washington, D.C., and a fourth plane crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. If I can say, thankfully, the plane in Pennsylvania was delayed and the passengers on board by that time knew what was going on, knew what was happening, knew that America was under attack. And when it became evident that their plane was also going to be used as a weapon by these terrorists, well, they decided to take action. And these brave people on this plane decided to, hey, look, we're going to die anyway, but we can protect lives on the ground. And so they took the plane back from the cabin, from the terrorist groups, and they stormed the uh, cockpit with fire extinguishers. And as a result of that, the terrorist pilot put it in a nosedive, and that plane hit the ground at over 500 miles an hour. Almost 3,000 people were killed during the 9-11 terrorist attacks, which triggered a, a, a major U.S. initiative to combat terrorism and define the presidency of George W. Bush. And at the times of those attacks, I was in the U.S. I was driving along in my car with my wife, and we were listening to some good Christian radio over there in the States, and they broke into the, uh, the music and, and uh, said, we have an alert. So the plane just hit the tower. And I'm thinking in my mind, um, you know, how could that happen? I mean, it's a big, big tower. How could, you, you know, how could you not miss it? But, you know, what happened to the plane? Was there some 
problems with the mechanics on the plane, or, or maybe they just didn't go high enough and they clipped it. You know, all these things are going through my mind. My heart sank when I heard it. I hope the people on the plane are okay. I hope nobody got hurt in the building, and, and if, it, if it crashed uh, on, the, on the ground, I hope nobody got hurt on the ground. And so I was going through my mind thinking of all the scenarios that may have taken place and may have happened. And my heart began to be filled with sorrow for those who may have gotten injured or hurt during that crash. And then as we were getting closer to home, I could hear the, the lady on, on, on the, uh, the radio, the news, and she was reporting on the first plane crash. And then she looked up, she goes, hang on, there, there's another plane coming. It, it's heading towards us. It's going right into the, to, to, to the buildings. I can't believe it has crashed. And it soon became evident that this was no accident. And the sorrow that I had originally in my heart soon turns to rage and anger. As what was taking place in America. When it became apparent that these terrorist attacks were happening, there were many people that were frightened and concerned. I mean, if the terrorists could get through so much of the airport security that we have in the States and get access to that, and, and they could kill so many people with one blow, how can we stop this from happening again? The nation as a whole was depressed, trying to make sense of it all. As we were walking down the streets or going through the mall, it was like people were just in a daze. Couldn't believe what just took place. What happened? The number of church attendance increased significantly after that event. Many people started coming to church again. They were wanting answers. They want to know, why is this happening? What's going on? They were wanting answers. Hopefully the church may have the answers. But I think more importantly, they were wanting some hope. It's easy for us to lose perspective in life when events like that happens. We are so overcome with grief and we become depressed and defeated. The American people needed hope. And so at 9 p.m., President George Bush delivered a televised address from the Oval Office declaring terrorist attacks can shake the foundation of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. Maybe some of that was wishful thinking. Because it had rocked a world. These acts, he says, shatter steel, but they cannot dent the steel in America resolve. And he went on to tell them, tell, them, tell the American people that he will find out those who are responsible and he will deal with them. In Isaiah chapter 6, a tragic event happens in the life of Isaiah. Israel, many years ago, had decided that they wanted to have a king like other nations. And so God said to him, hey, listen, you don't want other kings. Allow me to rule Israel. Let me be your king. Let me be your God. And they said, no, 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 no. We want to be like other nations. We want a king to rule over us. And God says, okay, fine. I'll give you a king, but you're going to be sorry. You're going to regret it. And if you go through and look at all the king's histories of God's people, most of them were horrible kings. They didn't do what was right in the sight of God. They drove God's people away from God. And because of that, oftentimes we find Israel under God's judgment. 
However, there were a few good kings, a few godly kings, and one of those kings' name was Uzziah. Uzziah, he was a good king. And notice how Isaiah chapter 6 starts off here. It starts off with the death of Uzziah. And this triggers a vision for Isaiah. Notice in verse 1, In the year of King Uzziah, King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. During this tragic time in Isaiah's life, he looked up. He looked up. And when he did, he got a glimpse of God. Uh, Isaiah got a proper vision of who God is. And notice the timing of this. In the year that King Uzziah died. King Uzziah took the throne about the age of 16. And he reigned uh, for 52 years. And overall, King Uzziah was a good king. He was a godly king. He brought peace to the land and uh, uh, made Israel a, a, a powerful nation and um, he was well loved by the people, and at his death, it was a time of national crisis. Maybe along the lines of 9-11 for America. This was a big deal. It was a time of transition, a time of uncertainty. Israel had the propensity to turn from God without godly leadership. The enemies of Israel would love to take advantage of the fact that Israel was now without a leader, and they were in mourning. History will record that Uzziah was one of the greatest and godliest kings of that time. And now, all of this was changing. Who will take his place? Now, towards the end of Uzziah's reign, unfortunately, pride got the best of him. God had specific jobs for king, and God had specific jobs for the priest. And, I, and, and Uzziah took it upon himself to go and do that which the priest can only do. And as a result of that, God judged him. For his intrusion into the sacred duties of the priesthood, he was smitten with leprosy and had to withdraw from a public affair, and eventually he went to a leopard's grave. And what a sad ending for a godly king. And we see that in our society as well. We have somebody who will go out and do some wonderful things for God or some wonderful things for our country, wonderful things for our nation, and they go and they get, allow pride to build up in their hearts, and they go and do one stupid thing. And because of that, it just totally ruins their reputation. We see that in our society. But despite that, Israel looked at Uzziah as a hero king. He looked up to him. And as he reflects upon the death of his king, he had a vision that transformed his life and ministry. When did Uzziah die? What happened at his death? That's when he was able to see the Lord. When Uzziah died, let me ask you, who is your Uzziah? Who is the one that you're putting your confidence in? Who is the one that you're trusting in to make everything okay? When your Uzziah dies, that's when you can see the Lord. Your Uzziahs, they must die. It's very important that they do. You can't fix your eyes on a church. You can't fix your eyes on an individual. You can't fix your eyes on an institution. You can't fix your eyes on a government agency. We have to fix our eyes on the Lord. Especially during times of great tragedy. But notice his vision here. Notice he saw a throne. Notice the throne. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. 
Now, if you go over to John chapter 12, verse 41, he says, And these things Isaiah, when he saw his glory and spake of him. John here is actually talking about Jesus Christ. And so he is saying that Isaiah here is looking at Jesus Christ on his throne. This is not a, a stool that he's sitting on. He's not sitting on the floor. He's not pacing back and forth up in heaven saying, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? What's going to, what's going to happen? Uzziah, my godly king, has died. Oh no, what am I going to do? No, he's sitting up on his throne. And when others had vision, he is always sitting upon his throne, the seat of authority, the seat of power. He is high and lifted up. He is exalted. And it is important that we understand God's rightful place in our life. Though King Uzziah was no longer upon the throne, God was allowing Isaiah to say, hey, listen, the throne's not empty. The throne's not empty. We still are on the throne, and we have control. He is exalted, high and lifted up. And no matter what tragic circumstances happen in your life, no matter what terrible thing people do in our world, it's important that we look up and we see who's on the throne. God was not surprised by what happened in our world. God was not surprised what's happening in your life. He is still God, He is still on the throne, and He is still high and lifted up. Get a hold of that this morning. Notice the train. It really has no purpose in and of itself. It's not a covering. If you get cold, you've got extra clothes that you can wrap up in. That's not what it's for. The trains were a sign of, of, of honor and majesty, and the bigger the train, the greater the honor and the power. Some believe that Isaiah was praying and worshiping in the temple at the time. And, and when all the other worshipers was left, he was there left alone. And it was then that God revealed this vision to him. And as he looked up, it was as if the train, the Lord's robe, filled the whole temple. Imagine what that must have been like. Two verses tell us that, in verse 2 rather, it tells us that the seraphim had six wings. And they stood above the temple. The seraphims also means burning one. So I would imagine these guys probably looked like fire of some sort. They're burning. And they were above the temple and they had six wings. And it says that four of them were used for humility. There was two to cover their feet and two to cover their face. They couldn't even look upon the Lord because of His holiness. Listen, my friend, there is no arrogance around the throne of God. People who think that they're going to tell God off someday... They don't have a clue who they're dealing with. These holy, glorious beings in all creation, they themselves could not even look upon the Lord. They had to cover their eyes. And then they had two wings that were for flying to show their willingness to serve, ready to go anywhere God commands them to go. Notice here that there were more wings devoted to adoration than to service. We first need to get a proper understanding of who God is before we can serve Him. And notice the testimony. In verse 3, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with His glory. And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of the one who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. 
Man, what a sight that must have been. When Isaiah got a glimpse of the Lord, the only way the seraphim could describe him was holy, holy, holy. Why does he cry out, holy, holy, holy? What does that declare about God? He recognized his moral excellency. His pure and righteous in all that he does. He is full of grace and truth. His love is expressed in the most perfect and balanced of justice and mercy. And notice here, they are talking to one another. These seraphims aren't talking to the Lord. They're not talking to, to Isaiah here. They're talking to each other. It's as if they've, they've got their eyes covered and they're looking at each other saying, Holy, holy, holy. And the other one turns, he looks up and he says, Yeah, I know. Holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, repetition strengthens the message. He wasn't just holy. He wasn't just holy, holy. He was holy, holy, holy. Holy means to set apart. God is set apart from His creation. If I had the proverbial red button that I could push and blow everything to smithereens, if I could destroy everything that was created, guess what? God would still be in existence and He would still be on His throne, high and lifted up. His existence is not dependent upon His creation. He is separate. It says the whole earth was filled with His glory. Some believe that this was the Shekinah glory, the same one that was in the Holy of Holies during the time of atonement. Can you imagine what it must have been like to see the glory of God fill the whole world? I would submit to you that if we were to take the time to have a look around in our world today, that we too would see the glory of God. We get such a rush, we get such a hurry, we get so self-focused, we don't take the time to see the glory of God in our world. We jump in our cars, open up the garage, go to work, come back, go into our garage, close the garage door, go inside. We miss it all. God's glory is all around us. In fact, Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, His creation and His eternal power and His Godhead so that they are without excuse. You see what that verse is saying? Because of the evidence of God within His creation, all of us are without excuse. I was looking at uh, a video the other day by Ray Comfort. And he was going around a place, I don't know where he was, but he was asking him, are you an atheist? Oh, yeah, I'm an atheist. So he hands him this book, and this book is filled with nice pictures and colors and things, and it was a beautiful book. And I said, what do you think about that book? Oh, it's a nice book. It's a lovely book. Great photos, great pictures. I love the color in it. Wonderful. What if I were to tell you that that book just happened by accident? That just all of a sudden from nowhere these colors just came and mixed and just fell on the paper. Maybe there was an explosion somewhere in the printing factory and this is what the results are. What do you think about that? They said, well, I think you're crazy. 
Well, why would you say that? Well, obviously, look at it. it it's, it's all put together. It's all nice and neat. Look at this. Somebody had to design it. Yeah. You ever heard of DNA? Have you ever, do, you, do you realize that every living thing in the world has DNA and that is specific to that individual or that living thing? Can you not look at that and say that it has to be a designer? How can you say that's an accident? And this is what we're saying here. This is what Romans is saying. Say, look at creation. Surely you can see the hand of God in creation. We're not going to be able to stand before God one day and say, oh, sorry, I didn't know. Not going to happen. As a result of this powerful proclamation, the posts of the doors were shaken and the house was filled with smoke. Let me ask you, what's your view of God? What's your view of God? When you consider the Lord, do you see Him in all of His glory? Do you really see Him for who He is? He is the Holy One, the Lord of hosts, the One who sits upon the throne in all of His glory. Isaiah saw Him in all of His glory. And when after Isaiah got a look, got a proper look and vision of God, his eyes then turned from the Lord and they began to turn inward and he began to see himself. And looking in, Isaiah gets a proper perspective of himself. And notice what he says in verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which was taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquities is taken away, and your sin purged. Notice his condition. When he got a proper vision of God, his only response was, Woe is me. Woe is me. And let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, when we get a proper vision of God, really understand who He is, our only response is, woe is me. That's the way it is. The closer you get to God, the more you recognize your faults and your failures. The closer you get to the throne of God, the more you become aware of your own depravity. Woe is me, for I am undone. God cannot use a man or a woman who has never admitted that. This is the precursor to cleansing. This is the direct effect that when you get closer to a holy and righteous God. If you think you've done no wrong, then you're not going to ask for forgiveness. If you don't think that you need salvation, then you're not going to ask for salvation. The closer we get to God, the more we see our need. As a child... I had a preacher that, man, he would preach the gospel. And he would preach salvation, and he would preach on sin, and he was, a, he was a pretty strong preacher. And he would get up there and talk about sin and talk about repentance. And we had a church, probably, I don't know, 2,000, maybe 2,500. It was a big church. And we would have up here, up the front, we'll call the altar. And it was the steps actually leading up to the pulpit. And it wrapped around the whole front of the auditorium. 
And we, he would call that the altar. And after he, he preached on sin, he would ask people, if you'd like to repent, if you want to come and repent of your sins, come down here to the altar and pray and ask God to forgive you. Now, as a little kid, we were all supposed to be with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, a time of reverence, but I'd peek. I'd look up and kind of see, you know, who all was coming, who all was walking down the aisle. And you know what amazed me? Those people who I considered very godly people, they were the first ones walking down the aisle, getting on their knees before God, confessing their sin to Him. I sat back, did they not understand what the pastor was asking for? I mean, they're asking for, you know, bad people to come and confess their sins. But people who have distanced themselves from God don't think that they're doing anything bad. They don't think they're doing anything wrong. They've taken a soft view of sin. Everybody's doing it. The pastor's doing it. The deacons are doing it. People in the church are doing it. Our politicians are doing it. What's so bad about it? People who have drawn near to God are acutely aware of grieving the Holy Spirit even in the little things and they want to get it right and they want to keep it right. Woe is me. A passionate cry of grief and despair. In the previous verses, Isaiah says, Woe unto the people, woe unto the inhabitants, woe unto the wicked. And he was looking at the wickedness of the people and he says, Woe unto them. But then when he stands before a holy and righteous God, he says, woe is me. I am undone. It's easy to find fault in others, but much harder to admit our faults in ourselves. We can talk about hypocrites in the church until we're blue in the face, and we can compare ourselves to them, and we can, you know what, we may come out looking pretty good. But listen, ladies and gentlemen, our standard is not hypocrites. That's not our standard. Let me invite you to step into the holiness of God here this morning and let's see how you measure up. Interestingly, Isaiah wasn't excited about the fact that he had seen the Lord. He wasn't praising the Lord and thinking, man, what an honor and privilege it was to see him on his throne high and lifted up. Instead, he had a totally different reaction. His uh, attention was drawn from the one on the throne to himself. Have you ever gone to a, a party or an event or something and they've uh, sent you out an invitation and maybe, I don't know, maybe it was like a pool party. And then somewhere along that week they've changed it to a, a formal dinner and you didn't get the memo. And you show up at the formal dinner and you got your togs on, you got your water wings on, you got your, your snorkel and you got your inner tube, and you come walking in, and of course you look around, everybody's dressed in formal dress, and all their eyes, goes to you, right? Imagine what that must have felt like. That self-consciousness, that self-awareness is what Isaiah was experienced, but at a much greater, higher level. As he was standing in the presence of the one who was holy, he suddenly became aware of his unholiness. And he says, woe is me. Now, woe is me is a bit archaic. We wouldn't say, we say, we'd, you know, uh-oh, I'm, I'm in trouble. Probably what we would say. 
when you, when, when you prepare your rental place, those of you who are renting, you know what I'm talking about, and you go and you get it clean, you kind of close the blinds, you know. And then you have these agents that have the audacity to come into your house and open up your blinds. Are you kidding me? And then as soon as all that light comes in, and you start to cringe, you're like, ooh, hang on, I forgot to do that. Ooh, I missed that. Oh, no. And you start to see all the things that you missed. You see, that's what light does. It exposes you. And as Isaiah stands in the light of, 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 of a holy and righteous God, he gets a glimpse of who he really is. And you know what? He doesn't like what he sees. And then he goes into his confession. He says, I am undone. The word undone means to, to cease, to cause to cease, to cut off, to destroy, to perish. Isaiah found himself in the presence of a holy and righteous God, and his response was, uh-oh, I'm a dead man. In Revelation, whenever Jesus comes back to earth to rule and reign, there will be those who will go and look upon God, and they cannot stand to see His holiness, and they'll actually be crying out for the rocks to fall down on them and crush them because they can't stand being in the presence of a holy God. Who are we to think that we can stand before a holy and righteous God in our sins? He says, I am unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell with the people of unclean lips. Why is there so much talk about lips here? Why didn't he say, I'm a man of unclean hearts? I dwell in the midst of a people of impure hearts. I'll tell you, because out of the abundance of hearts, the mouth speaks. If the heart is pure, then the lips are going to be pure. If the heart is defiled, the lips are going to be defiled. The lips in this passage is representative of the whole condition of man. The evidence of uncleanliness is found in his lips. You go and you listen to a, a person speak. And if you listen to them speak long enough, you'll get a good indication of what their heart is like. It won't take very long. He says, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, seeing God in all of His holiness brought to light His own uncleanliness. The reason why people don't think they need salvation is because they haven't recognized their own sinfulness in the light of the holiness and righteous God. They haven't had a personal revelation of God and seen Him as who He really is. Not just who society thinks He is. Society understanding of God is often a consensus of who they want Him to be rather than who He really is. People create this image of God in their minds and they want to go and hold God accountable to that. It's really quite absurd how many people are totally angry with God because they believe that He's not behaving the way they think they should, that He should. How many people will not come to God on His terms but have imagined some of those terms that He ought to come to and they expect God to conform to that? Listen, my friend, God is a holy God. And the closer we get to Him, the more conscious of our wickedness we come. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, But in your iniquities, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. Psalm 66 verse 18, But if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. This is why this is such a crucial step in our walk. 
If we continue to live in sin, we will not be able to hear from God, and God will not be able to hear us. We need to confess or agree with God that our lips are unclean. But it is that same God that can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they should be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Come, let us reason together. Come on, let's talk about it. No matter how little or how big of a mess you've made of your life, we all fall short of the glory of God. All of us. We're all in the same boat. But notice what happened to Isaiah. We see his cure. One of the seraphim flew over to the altar and picked up the live coals with a pair of tongs and touched his lips. Now you may think that this may be a scary thing. I mean, here you have this burning seraphim coming at you with a coal in his hand and he's heading straight for your face. Can you imagine that? But it wasn't seeing the seraphim that alarmed him. It was seeing the king. A vision of the holiness immediately revealed Isaiah's own depravity. Isaiah, by human standards, is probably a good moral man. He was a godly king. But our best is as filthy rags in the light of God's purity and God's righteousness. A revival that manifests the power and glory of God must begin with the conviction of the Holy Spirit and a revelation of sin. We can't have it both ways. We can't have our sin and the glory of God at the same time. The glory of God carries with it a revelation of the holiness of God, and that revelation exposes unrighteousness. And in the presence of a holy God, man must fall to repentance. You see that in Job. You see that in Daniel, John of Patmos, and Paul on the road to Damascus, whenever they saw the righteousness of God, holiness of God, up on the throne, they fell on their faces before him. This burning coal wasn't to burn him up, but rather it was to build him up. As a result, his iniquity was taken away and his sin was purged. Fire purifies. Now this does not mean that the fire from the altar had any physical effects to purify him from sin. It was emblematic of such a purifying. The fact that this was taken from the altar of sacrifice was an indication that he was going, this was a, a pardon of sin. This was atonement by the sacrifices that was made thereon. Coals were from the brazen altar. The brazen altar was where the blood sacrifices were offered. The coal symbolized his atonement. Israel's sin problem was not resolved. I'm sorry, Isaiah's sin problem was not resolved by sincere resolution. It wasn't resolved by 40 stripes. It wasn't resolved by, by 30 days of penance. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse one from sin. Only Jesus. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews tells us, there is no remission of sin. There is no forgiveness of sin. But the altar of Calvary is available to anyone and all sinners who will fall in the holiness of God and confess their need and their helplessness and their undoneness. The sacrifice that was upon the altar was a picture of the sacrifice that was to come, Jesus Christ himself. Becoming the ultimate sacrifice for us, cleansing all from sin. 
Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6 says, We are all like sheep that have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who is him? Well, that him in that verse is none other than Jesus Christ. He's put all of our iniquity on him, our sins, past, present, and future. And once we get a proper vision of God and we get a proper perspective of ourselves in the light of His holiness and allow that cleansing to take place in our life, then we can look out. And looking out, Isaiah gets a proper passion for others. In verse 8, says, I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. We see the commission. He says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Notice, he's the one that commands the seraphims. He's the one that commands the cherubim. And he could have commanded Isaiah, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't issue a command. He poses a question. Who shall I send? Who will go for us? He's looking for volunteers, only volunteers. God will not bully you into his service. He simply raises the question and waits for your response. And if you don't respond, the moment passes and the opportunity of a lifetime passes with it. We also see his commitments. Once he hears from God, once he hears the questions from God, and, and he goes and answers that call. Once Isaiah gets a proper vision of God and a proper perspective of himself, he gets a proper passion for others. And he says, here am I. Send me. Here am I. Send me. Here, Lord, I'll go. And then we see the command of the Lord. And the next verse, he, he says to Isaiah, Go and tell my people. He gives him a message to share with others. God has a message for us to share with us, with others, church. He's got a message for us to share. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I command you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the world. Amen. God's plan of grace placed somebody in your path who was willing to share the message of Christ with you. And now we have the responsibility to share that message with others. He's looking for volunteers. Are you willing to say, here am I? Send me. Have you got a proper vision of God this morning? Do you truly see Him in all of His holiness? Do you measure up to His presence? Do you see your need for cleansing here this morning? Well, if so, then you come to the right place. Jesus Christ can cleanse you from your sin right here and right now. You must believe in your heart that Jesus died on the cross, paid for your sins. You must believe that he was buried and rose again the third day. And if you're willing to confess your sin and call out to Jesus to save you, he can cleanse you from your sin right here this morning. And if that is your need here this morning, let me encourage you, please, don't walk out of here today without asking Jesus Christ to save you. Because once you walk out of here, you're going to forget about it. You're not going to think about it. 
This is why the Bible tells us, behold, now is the day of salvation. Right now, this is the opportunity you get. We're not promised tomorrow. Those that were up in those planes, those that were up in those towers, they were probably had a schedule wondering what they were going to do next week. They had an appointment next week. They had a lunch schedule next week. It was probably in their diaries. They never once thought that this would be the end. We're not promised tomorrow. This may be the, the only opportunity you have. I'm not trying to scare you here. This is reality. Now, some of you have been there. You've realized the holiness of God and how far short you've fallen of God's glory and His holiness. And yet, there is a, there's the good news. It's that dark and that burdened field and that uh, guilt-laden and, and shameful place where God begins to work in your life. It is in that place where God can reach down into your life, touch you with His grace and forgiveness as He did with Isaiah, and then offer you a new beginning. That's who God is. Our God is a God of second chances. And if you're at that point in your life where you say, woe is me, I am undone, then God is ready to meet you where you're at right now. Those that have called upon God, have you heard His calling on your life? He has been... Has, has he been talking to you? Has he been uh, tapping you on the shoulder saying, who's going to go over here? Who's going to talk to this person? Who's going to talk to this person? How will you respond this morning? Will your answer be, here am I. Send me. I don't know how God wants to use this message in, in your life here this morning. But whatever it is God is calling you to do, I encourage you, before you leave here this morning, make sure you're right with God.